Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. And we're going to enjoy a message from God's Word, a message of hope, a message that will help us to be focused on what really matters. I'm going to begin with a few comments as you find your way to that text. I believe that to a large degree, hum humanity has forgotten who we are. Think about this. Human humans have forgotten who they are. And they've forgotten who they are because they have forgotten who God is. We are created. He is the creator. And when the created do not consult the creator for definitions about who they are, for his views about how we should act, we lose our way. Now, we all need to worship something. And so we live at a point in history, especially in the West, where we have replaced the true and living creator God with a false God, the God of scientific humanism, the God that says to us, you're just the end result of a series of evolutionary biological aberrations, the God that says you're the center of the universe, it's your rights that matter. You are your own God. This is the God of scientific humanism. This is the God of macroevolution that tells us that we are merely biological beings. And this view of life has implications for how we live. If we believe in the message of scientific humanism, then the question, what is my purpose? Why am I here? is simple to answer. It's for pleasure. You're going to be born at a particular date. You're going to die at a particular date. And that's all there is to life. So live for the moment Live for physical pleasure. Live as long as you can. Do everything that you can to make sure you can live as long as you can. Fixate on your physical health. Avoid the virus at all costs because the worst thing that could happen to you is that you might die. Live in fear of death and push everyone else aside in order to get your way. Do you see this behavior in society? You see it? Often packaged up in sophisticated ways with many excuses and fancy ribbons. But I'm convinced this is the worldview that dominates Western culture. And of course, we would not ever permit that kind of thing in the church, right? Well, maybe at times we do. Because unfortunately, as we spend time with one another and analyze our own notions of life and purpose we find that while we might be believers, many of us live with a secular worldview. And it's evident in how we spend our money. It's evident in how we marry and divorce and remarry. It's evident in how we raise our children. I mean, unfortunately, in many Christian churches today, we have parents that are Christian in their beliefs, but secular in the way they raise their kids. And the proof of that is that their children do not go on to serve the Lord. They're essentially secularized in their mindset. They think dating unbelievers is acceptable and they permit that in their homes. They think that skating around an ice rink is more important than studying the word of God and do not hold their children accountable to study the word of God and to be people of prayer. They balk at the idea of their children sacrificing their lives to care for the disadvantaged to shepherd churches, to go on to the mission field. And they applaud their children when they enter into 
more well-paying vocations. Nothing wrong with those vocations, of course. The majority of the church will be engaged in those kinds of vocations. But the question is, is it your calling or are you just there out of convenience for the paycheck? These are all indicators that many believers live as secularists. Now, if you're like me, you want to make the most out of life. So how do we make the most out of life? How do we make sure that we are living our lives significantly and purposefully, that we're not wasting our lives as secularists are wasting their lives? So the most basic answer to this question is to know God and to know his plans, to know who God is and to know his plans in the present and his plans in the future for the people of God. In order to do so, you need to study the scriptures and allow God's eternal truths to affect your present life. To allow God's eternal truths to affect your present life. As we enter into 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, we're doing a series here on 2 Corinthians in our church, we have three encouraging truths that come to the forefront. These are not just truisms, so it's not appropriate just to leave here today and say, oh, I know three more truths now, or I've been reminded of three more truths. These are truisms that are meant to affect your response, your worship, your life, your priorities, your hope, your sadness, all of that. And the first truth is that we are more than biotic beings, meaning that human beings are more than the sum total of their biology. We are more than physical beings. We are more than that. We are more than physical beings. This is a truth that our culture has forgotten. And are we surprised if we're just at a particular point in evolutionary history, we just sort of evolved into this, we're really of no more significance than a rabbit or a sparrow, we're just biological beings, we're born, we die, that's all there is to it? I mean, that profoundly affects the way you live your life on every level. But the scriptures tell us we are more than biotic beings. In the first verse, it says, for we know that if this tent, speaking about our physical bodies, notice it refers to our physical bodies as a tent, a temporary, weak and fragile structure is what a tent is. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, and it will be, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. What's a tent? A tent is a temporary structure. A temporary structure. A weak and fragile structure. You go into museums, you don't see thousand-year-old tents. But you can travel all over the world and see thousand-year-old, two-thousand-year-old, three-thousand-year-old structures. You go into the desert, Cairo, Egypt. What do you see? Pyramids, buildings. You don't see petrified tents. Even the majority of the population at certain points in time, especially the nomadic people, lived in tents. Tents come and they go. But buildings are enduring. And the kind of house that we have or building that we have to look forward to is one that is actually not made by human hands. So it goes beyond the longevity of the pyramids or fancy cathedrals that have been built centuries ago. 
This is a structure, a building that is eternal in the heavens. This is referring to our future bodies, our future bodies, and reminds us of our future hope. This body that you see talking to you on the stage is one day going to be in a casket. I will die one day. This is not going to be here forever. But we believe that God will resurrect this body and make it new. And I will spend eternity in the kingdom of God, no longer susceptible to death. Now, the timing of this is informative. Roughly speaking, our tents last for about 70 years, give or take. But the eternal house that God has in store for us literally lasts forever. Now, I know because I've been camping many, many times that it's fun for a little while to sleep in a tent. I understand that. Maybe not so much at my age, but when I was younger. It's fun to go tenting. You you go out to a campsite or out into the wilderness and you pitch your tent and you get in there and there's something kind of exciting about it until the first rainstorm hits and it starts to leak or until it gets incredibly cold at night or until you wake up smelling this musty smell because last time you packed up your tent, you forgot to dry it out. There's some pleasure associated with being in a tent, but there's no lasting pleasure associated with being in a tent. And likewise, there is some pleasure associated with being in these physical bodies, but there's no lasting pleasure associated with being in these physical bodies. If you've ever slept in a leaky, cold, musty tent, and then you packed it all up and you headed off to a warm, posh, five-star hotel room, and you walked in and there was running water, you're like, oh, I miss running water. And there's a warm shower, and you're like, oh, that feels so good. And there's a nice, comfortable bed. Suddenly you're like, yeah, tenting's really not all that great. And this is an illustration for us from the word of God that reminds us that the world that we are living in is temporary. And one day the tent that we are in is falling apart. Your body is a tent. And it, at some point in the future, if not already, is going to start getting a little musty and a little leaky, maybe literally, by the way, a little leaky. It's not going to last forever. It's going to go away. So what are some applicational truths we can take out of this? Number one, we have hope beyond our tents. We have eternal hope. This life is just a flash in the pan. This is just a small sliver of time. But there is an eternity in store for those of us that are faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, we need to concern ourselves with more than our physical health. If I am more than a biotic being, if I have a a soul and a spirit, then I need to tend to that. It's not just running on the treadmill, you know, avoiding carbs, going on the keto diet, taking my meds, washing myself off, getting surgery when I need it. All of those things are fine, but I need to feed my eternal man. I need to make sure that I'm being fed from God's word. And serving God's eternal purposes with my life, with my life that's what's going to matter in eternity. We also need to be feeding one another spiritual food and reminding one another that we are not just biotic beings. That we are made in the image and likeness of God. 
that we have eternal souls, that we are here to worship him and glorify his great name. I think these are all mindful applications of the truth that were presented here in verse one. And we need to take them to heart because we're not going to be told this outside in the world around us. Secondly, we need to be reminded that when we die, or we will die rather, but we have a glorious future. So listen to these words from verses two to five. For in this tent we groan. Oh man, my back's sore. Oh, I stubbed my toe. Oh, oh man. Uh-oh, I have cancer. You look in the mirror. I was outside working the other day, probably about a week ago now, and I, I, I came in and you know, I was kind of grubby and I was washing my hands and I, I looked up in the mirror and it was, it was quite sunny out. The sun was kind of coming through and I'm like, who is that guy? I didn't know I had that many wrinkles. Look at my skin, what? And I was just kind of surprised when I looked close. I guess I don't pay much attention to what I look like. Won't surprise you, but it surprised me. I didn't know I looked that old. And we groan as we are reminded of our own fragility. But in this tent as we groan, we're also longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed, by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us his spirit as a guarantee, a down payment, proof. If you've been indwelt with the spirit of God, I'm indwelt with the spirit of God, and let's say you're a skeptic and you're like, show me proof that you're indwelt with the spirit of God. You're probably looking for something you can taste, touch, see, smell, hear, that kind of proof. I can't offer that to you. But because I'm made in the image and likeness of God and I'm a spiritual being, I know that I'm indwelt with the spirit of God. I know that I have fellowship with God. I wish I could prove it to you objectively and concretely using things from nature and the created world around me. I can't. God is spirit. God transcends the physical world. So it's actually a categorical fallacy for me to try to extract proof from a physical world to prove that a being who is by nature outside of the physical world is real or true or indwells me. But if you are a believer, you know by informed experiential faith and by God's revelation that you are indwelt with the Spirit of God because you've encountered him time and time again. You know it, and I know it. And it is this spirit that is a guarantee for us. The text reminds us of that which we already know, but perhaps takes it from the back of our minds and brings it to the front of our minds. And that is the true believer in this life groans. And we groan, folks, because life is hard. It's hard. We've experienced some weight already this morning as I talked to you earlier. It's, it's burdensome. It's troublesome as we look at the state of our world. And we long for something better. We groan due to the troubles of life. We groan because of, because of death, because of disease, because of persecution, because at times we feel all alone, because at times we're cold, or there's no money left in the bank, 
Our food's getting a little short in the cupboard. Or someone who we love has abandoned us. Or we groan because of our own propensity towards addiction and reliance upon physical things and substances. We groan under all of that burden. These are, as the text says, burdens that we carry. And we carry those. And then in addition to that, sometimes we carry the burdens of those that we love. As we're in relationship, it's not just our burdens, but we're burdened for the pain that we see in the eyes of those that we love. We're burdened when we hear about the challenges that our family members are going through, our fellow believers are going through, our children are going through, our parents are going through, our grandparents are going through. We're, we're burdened for ourselves and we're also burdened for others. But the Bible reminds us that God has prepared something better for us. And by faith, and faith is not believing in something you know isn't true. Faith is believing in something that you know is true because God has revealed it to you through, if we could use this language, a sixth sense, a sense that transcends my vision and my ability to touch something or hear something. It's a sixth sense. It's the spiritual dimension to my humanity that's been made alive in Christ. That's an informed faith. We believe by faith in Christ that God has guaranteed for us a future. And he's given us a down payment, the Holy Spirit who lives within us. I'm wondering how often you take time just to kind of sit back and think to yourself, there's more to come. There's more to come. How often does that actually cross your mind? There's more to come. There's more to come. I'm usually thinking about what I got to do Monday morning. And then when that comes, oh, what's my schedule Tuesday? And what do I got to prepare for next week? And we live by our day timers which record all of our temporal appointments. We're thinking about that and we're checking our schedules, making sure we're not late for our appointments. But I wonder how often we think back and just kind of remind ourselves there's, there's more to come. This thinking, which should be a regular part of our thinking, helps us to make the most out of life in the moment. You actually can maximize the moment the more you think about the future. Because if you know you're going there, then you use this time to prepare for going there. Thinking about the future actually enables you to maximize your life in the present. Someone said, you know, we can be so heavily minded that we're of no earthly value. You think too much about heaven. There are no earthly value. And yes, there are some pious Christians out there that don't seem to have their feet planted in reality. And, you know, I don't think that the call of Christ is just, you know, go into a closet or into a monastery and just study your Bible and pray you know, 24-7 and never engage with the world or never be responsible for your family or never seek to be gainfully employed. That's not, that's not a Christian worldview. But the reality of our future should affect everything we do in the here and now. If you are into investing, you invest money in your retirement or you invest money in real estate, essentially what you're doing is you're participating in an act of delayed gratification. You're participating in an act of delayed gratification. You're saying, I'm going to take some of what I have now 
And I'm going to set it aside for a rainy day or for the future. I'm going to think about the future. And there's many people that are very gainfully employed as financial advisors saying to you, look, you need to invest. You need to invest. You need to save up for your retirement. You need to you know, get your money in TFSAs. You need to think about the future. And I, I think this is, all, this is all fine and dandy, and I do this myself. I think about the future. But that's just the, the near future. That's just a little ways down the road, just a few decades away, maybe a few years away, maybe a few months away for some of you. How many of us apply the same kind of energy to preparing for our eternal future, to investing in that which really matters? I mean, what rocks your boat more? The fact your investments drop during a recession or your spiritual life is diminishing? What gives you greater concern? The fact that your retirement savings aren't secure? Or the fact that maybe you're wandering a little bit from your faith and confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ? When we invest, it requires that we sacrifice now for the future. And in the same way, we sacrifice now, while still enjoying many of the benefits of life, for the cause of the eternal kingdom of God. You know, it's interesting that in the Lord's Prayer, which many of us prayed back in public school, and probably we all know by heart, there's, a, there's an interesting phrase in the Lord's Prayer, which I'm not sure we think that much about. And the phrase is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come to earth. Now, in our theology, we believe the kingdom of God is now, but not yet. God inaugurated his kingdom through the work of Christ, but the full expression of that kingdom is yet future. But in that prayer, what we're basically saying is, Lord, we want your kingdom rule to be manifested in the here and now. But then you sit back and think, I'm actually living that way. Am I seeking to advance the purposes of God's kingdom? I prayed it in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus invites us to pray that way. And, and the, am I seeking to bring kingdom values into the mix in the way that I conduct myself in my marriage? Like, is it a kingdom-minded marriage? Is your marriage a kingdom-minded marriage? Are my children kingdom-minded people or just career-minded people, temporal-type people? In your place of employment, are you a kingdom-minded manager, a kingdom-minded engineer, a kingdom-minded nurse, a kingdom-minded carpenter, a kingdom-minded accountant, a kingdom-minded factory worker? Are you kingdom-minded? Now, to be kingdom-minded goes far beyond well, every once in a while, I look for an opportunity to share my faith around the proverbial water cooler. A kingdom-minded Christian brings the values and the virtues into their employment. They live out the values of the kingdom. They demonstrate before the watching world their radical commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as I mentioned last week, those of you that have opportunity should rise as high as you possibly can in your place of employment and make as much money as you possibly can in your place of employment so that you can use those resources for the purposes of the kingdom. 
and so that you can influence those around you for the cause of the kingdom. If God gives you opportunity, make as much money as you possibly can. Many of you have never heard that in church. Make as much money as you possibly can. Rise as high in your organization as you possibly can. Assuming, of course, that you know you're a steward, not an owner. And that you will steward the power, the authority, and the resources that God has given to you for the cause of the kingdom. And in all of that, be prepared on a moment's notice to lose it all for the cause of Christ. Be prepared to lose it all for the cause of Christ. Here's the third truth, which I think is a huge blessing for us to hear, and that is courage is our daily normal. Courage is our daily normal. And I think we need some increased courage in the days ahead. Do you agree with me on that? We need to grow in courage and confidence. Verses 6 through 10 is just such a blessing, such a blessing to my heart as I read this to myself. It says, so we are always of good courage. How often are we supposed to be of good courage, church? Always, always. How is that possible? Here's why. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Is that true of you? Or are you just loving this life too much? Where would you rather be today? I'd rather be at home sleeping. No, you should say, I'd rather be with the Lord, actually. I'm not suicidal. I'm not going to end it early. But I'd rather be with the Lord because I understand what that is. And by faith, I believe that is my eternal destiny. So here's the response, verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, and right now we are away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due him for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Always means that our courage is not dependent upon temporary circumstances. Think about that. Our courage is not dependent upon temporary circumstances. Otherwise, we can't always have courage. It's not dependent. What's it dependent upon? It's dependent upon the changeless one who has secured eternal life for us. So it's outside of ourselves. It's not dependent on circumstances. It's outside of ourselves. Courage is dependent upon our final destination, not our current trials. Courage is confidence. Yes, we acknowledge that in the here and now we have a deficit. We're away from the Lord. Now, God is present with us, but we're not in heaven yet. It's different. There's still some mystery to our walk with the Lord. But we have faith in all of this. And by the way, faith is hope, as I've alluded to earlier. It's really hope based on revelation, and it's gifted to us by grace. It's not, it's not the same as looking out and saying, oh, there's a person sitting in front of me. Or it kind of feels about, about 70 degrees in the room right now. 
It's, it's not that kind of experience. It's not something that I can perceive with my, my eyes or feel with my skin. It's granted to us by grace, and it's based upon divine revelation that God has given to us, which is an adequate source of truth. In fact, it's more adequate than what we can possibly perceive with our human physical senses. We have faith in this, and so we live for another world, and even when things are taken away, we retain our courage. So when we're like, oh man, I just got a diagnosis. I'm not going to be around in a couple years or a few months. Do we smile and say, hey, I have cancer, everyone. I'm going to die. That's awesome. No, we don't do that. We mourn the burdens of life, but we don't lose our courage. We don't stop worshiping. Will we have to endure persecution at times in this life? Yes. Will we have to resist tyranny? Yes. Our forebears did and bless many generations as a result. We know the world is fading fast and we must be courageous. We must endure. And I think it's appropriate at times to fight back. Sometimes Jesus just walked away. Sometimes he fought back with his words. One day the text tells us in verse 10, we're going to have to give an account for the things done in the body, whether good or bad. We're going to have to give an account for our hope. Was I a man of hope, our courage, our faith? I'm going to have to give an account for these things. By the way, if you're interested in uh, some of the technicalities of biblical eschatology, this judgment seat mentioned here in the text is what we as theologians call the Bema seat. B-E-M-A. That's the word there. The Bema seat. And this is written to Christians, right? It's written to a church, the Corinthian church. So this is the, the final judgment, if you will, for believers, for believers. This is not a judgment unto damnation, but it's a reward ceremony of sorts. It's a judgment where each of us who are believers will have to one day stand before God and give an account for the things done in the body, whether they be good or evil, which means that sometimes Christians will do that, which is evil. And we will have to give an account for that and God will reward us accordingly. Now, if you go to Revelation chapter 20, we have a different judgment. It's called the great white throne judgment. Let me just tell you, you don't want to be at that judgment because that's not a judgment where there's going to be believers in line and unbelievers. Everyone that's going to be in line for that judgment will be an unbeliever. And that's a judgment unto eternal death. That's a judgment where God will look upon the unbelieving world and will judge each person and consign them to a Christless eternity in the lake of fire. That's a different judgment. And fortunately, by God's grace, that's a judgment that we are immune to because Jesus Christ has already been punished on our behalf for our eternal crimes against God. But nevertheless, while we don't need to worry about the great white throne judgment, we do need to concert, concern ourselves that we're going to be held accountable for the way we've stewarded our lives and the way we've obeyed or disobeyed the Lord. This is something we need to be aware of. To bring it right into the moment, I'm going to ask you this question. Just meditate upon this one. 
if Jesus Christ were to return today, would you be prepared to stand before the Bema seat? That's a haunting question, perhaps, for some. If Jesus Christ were to return today, would you be prepared to stand before the Bema seat? You say, you know what, Lord? Yeah, I've, I acknowledge my weaknesses, but actually, I, I've been faithful to you. I, I've been faithful in my sexuality. I've been faithful with my mind. I've been faithful with my, my money. I've been faithful with my words. I've been faithful in love, faithful in my marriage, faithful in raising my children, faithful in Great Commission ministry. I've been faithful. Would you be prepared to stand before the Bema seat? Today could be our last day, by the way. We don't know when Jesus is coming back. We need to be prepared for this. This is sobering, but it should also be hopeful and encouraging for those that are seeking to live sacrificially for Christ. May I encourage you then, as you assess your own life, to make the most out of your life by knowing who you are and who God is. Make sure you don't miss that. And if you're in church, maybe you've been here once, twice, a few times, maybe this is your first day, I don't know, and you're unclear what it means to be a believer, I can tell you this, being a, a true Christian is not about wearing some label, I go to Harvest, or I go to the Anglican church, or whatever. That's, that's, not, that's not what it's all about. A true Christian is someone who has acknowledged they are a sinner. That's ground zero. I acknowledge I'm a sinner. I'm not a good guy by nature. I'm not self-righteous. I'm a sinner, born a sinner, lost. I don't deserve heaven. I don't deserve grace. I'm a sinner. The heart of the gospel is an acknowledgement of our depravity, our sin, our spiritual lostness. And then... And it's acknowledgement of the exact opposite about Christ, his perfection. The fact that he is God. The fact that he is always righteous. The fact that he created us through his own word. And that that Christ, because he loved us, came into this world. And he lived among us and was abused by us, persecuted by us, and tortured by us, and ultimately murdered by humanity. But he then died as an innocent man, never having sinned, also fully God, in my place, on my behalf, paying for my spiritual crimes, paying for my sin. And the way that his innocence becomes my innocence, and the way that his sacrifice blesses me with eternal life is through repentance, turning away from sin and belief in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ for me. Guaranteed, by the way, through his subsequent resurrection from the dead. Guaranteeing that I will, not, I will die once, but not twice because I've been born twice. 
You put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and cry out to him and repent of your sins and believe in him, God will transform you from the inside out. And you will be eternally assured and secured by his love and grace as a child of God for all of eternity. This is the, the, the bedrock of the Christian faith. And it really is the starting point of the Christian faith as well. And it makes all the difference in the world because then your life just gets an infusion of hope and the blessing of God's grace.